say hi. Uh, I've got four children, two daughters, uh, 31 and 30, and uh, two boys. He's turning 21 and 19. Uh, my youngest is just starting at K-State, so I'm a divided house uh, these days with uh, boys at both the, the schools in Kansas. So um, let me briefly give you a little bit more of a background in Global Scholars, and a lot of you know this since you've been supporting the ministry for many years, but I want to give you a quick update, and then I'll speak on the topic I've been asked to address. So ultimately, we have the conviction that what's taught in the classroom today is believed by our nation tomorrow, and not just our nation, by every nation, as every nation is influenced by the universities in their countries. So our vision is that every Christian professor in the world is equipped to proclaim Christ in biblical truth, the biblical worldview, to every student and within every discipline and uh, among uh, every colleague of theirs, so that every nation is renewed. Now, we were established back in uh, the mid-80s and were ascending ministry for many years, but now have shifted to equipping professors already in universities around the world. Uh, To date, now that we've made that shift, we've been able to identify 657 professors around the world to equip. Uh, I don't know if it says it on there. It uh, does 48 countries. I can't keep track. It seems to always be growing. Uh, But 48 different countries, 24 different disciplines. The majority of um, the professors right now that we're engaged with, that we're equipping, are in the U.S., in Sub-Saharan Africa, and in Europe. Uh, growing is South America and East Asia. Uh, We've been encouraged because a lot of the professors who've come to us have been professors actually in theology departments in African universities and some Asian universities that are in public universities uh, who want to be equipped to find ways to, you know, to, to not just teach their subject but actually engage their students in, in, in terms of evangelism and discipleship and, and ministry. Uh, others, uh, say in education, where we have a lot of folks, or in business, or in some other fields, who, who are very skilled at sharing their faith and engaging their students personally, come to us and say, I need more help and training bringing my faith and my discipline together, bringing biblical truth into what I teach and, and, and my research projects. So we sort of work in both ends, the personal engagement with students and colleagues, as well as the ideas that are part of the conversation in their disciplines and bringing the biblical perspective to that. Uh, Part of this vision or conviction I have that drives me to do what I do is that ideas matter, and therefore the university matters. And so one of the things that I'm doing that ties into that, and I think might be interesting to you, is I've got two podcasts I want to tell you about. They've both launched within the past year. Uh, one is called College Faith, and the other is Thinking Christianly. Now, College Faith is sort of the practical stuff, and Thinking Christianly is the ideas. Uh, college Faith really addresses how do I do well in college as a Christian? So if your uh, children are heading off to school, if your grandchildren are heading off to school, if you're a student... This will address everything from study skills to, I just did an interview yesterday or Friday that will post the 1st of September on how do you think in biblical categories about every academic discipline. So real practical stuff that I think will be helpful. 
The other podcast actually just launched. We've only got five posted. It's called Thinking Christianly. I, I do it with a Christian philosopher named J.P. Moreland. Uh, and together we discuss ideas. So, uh, in fact, the thing I'm speaking on today, the inerrancy of Scripture was our topic last uh, edition that just posted the 15th of August. Uh, we're talking about the image of God in our next post. So we're trying to engage biblical ideas and unpack implications of those ideas for various conversations that are going on in the public square, maybe in universities or high schools or in your family. So those might be helpful to you. I encourage you to check both those out. You can find those on my website, which is just my name, stanwallace.org, as well as some articles I've written on different topics, including uh, the topic I'm speaking on today, where I unpack some of what I have to say. So uh, that's a little bit of what I'm doing, uh, the opportunities God's given me through your generous support to serve the kingdom in these ways in higher education, and we're broadening the world of ideas. So thank you. I hope uh, what I've shared is encouraging and what I'm going to speak on is encouraging, because uh, we're all in this together to see God's name proclaimed and his glory uh, pervade the nations, including the universities of our world. So so thanks again, and let me segue now into the, the topic for today. So what I want to speak about is why we can trust the Bible in its entirety, why we can have confidence that the, the Scriptures are without error. And I'm going to approach this not as a biblical exegete, because that's not what I am. Uh, my training is not in... Uh, the, 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 the study and teaching of Scripture per se. That's where Kevin's got expertise and others. My training is in Christian philosophy and apologetics, defenses of the faith. So I'm going to approach this issue from my perspective of, okay, what good arguments and reasons and rationale is there for having that view, for accepting the Scriptures as true in all it says, as inerrant, without error. And so I want to do two things. I want to define the, the position of inerrancy because there's a lot of misunderstanding and therefore caricatures of the view that are easily torn down. Then we get clear on what the view is. And then I wanted to offer three arguments for inerrancy that I think are bad, that are very commonly heard, uh, but that Christians offer, that we offer. And then I want to offer a fourth argument that is good but not best, and I want to offer a fifth argument that I think is very, very good and is, uh, is the reason I hold to inerrancy and I think that we ought to ground our view in, okay? So that's where I'm heading. I'm going to try to take, uh, you know, to finish this so that there's maybe 10 or 15 minutes just for discussion Q&A. Uh, so some of these things I might be a little bit briefer on and then we can talk more about them later, all right? So... I'm going to start by telling you about something going on in Kansas City. It's been going on for some time, and it's deeply concerning to me. You might have it going on here in Springfield, too. I don't know. In Kansas City, there is a very large, very influential church uh, whose pastor is also very influential, and he has changed his view of Scripture. He really saw the church grow because he had a very high view of Scripture, held a view that it's without error and something we can trust in its entirety. But because of actually social pressures and certain views that the scriptures are sort of at odds with in culture, 
He's come to the view that, and he's written on this, he's very clear, that he doesn't actually think the scriptures are without error, but they're inspiring. So you should still read them because you can meet God in the pages of scripture, but it's not that the text itself is without error. And he's leading a huge number of people astray by his writings, his teachings, his speaking. He's just got a lot of influence. And this happens all the time. In fact, it's not new. Timothy warns that this will happen from the first century. In 2 Timothy 4.3, he says, The time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And this is exactly what happens. And so the believer loses confidence that we have a sure foundation in Scripture to know God's mind and his truth. Uh, The the, the non-believer doesn't have any sense of whether there's truth here to be known. Uh, It's just your opinion. Faith is just a blind leap of faith. There's no grounding for it. And so uh, the mission of the church is emasculated because we're not able to proclaim the gospel as true and defended as such. So, uh, so at the end of the day, we all became, become like in the book of Judges. Uh, it says, where everyone does what is right in his or her own eyes. So I think it's really important for us to get clear on, no, the scriptures are actually God's word without error, and we can trust them to, to, uh, to know who God is, how he relates to us, how we can flourish and what it is he's calling us to do in the world to have a redemptive influence and bring about the flourishing of all people and the restoration of his kingdom. Amen? All right. So I've written on this in response to this pastor and others who have uh, taken this view. Uh, The last podcast that JP and I just did were on this. I'm passionate about this. So uh, when Kevin and I were talking... uh, sort of agreed I should speak on it. Now, for those of you who were around three years ago in October, I spoke on this then. So uh, if this sounds familiar, it's because it is, but we agreed that it's important enough, and I'm passionate enough about this that I ought to address it again, so it might be a refresher course. Hopefully, for those of you who were here then, it's helpful. If not, hopefully I have some things that might be, a, might be of value. So I do want to tether this to a text of Scripture, and then... Uh, unpack why we can trust this text of Scripture, and that's 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, or for training in righteousness, teaching, correcting, and training, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay? Now let's unpack what that actually means. And let's start with defining this idea that, that all Scripture is inspired by God. What, what do we actually mean when we say that, and what don't we mean? And then let's, um, let's, let's talk about why we would believe that's true. So first of all, what do we mean, or what do I mean, when I, when I understand that passage to say that this is God's inerrant word? Well, every translation of that passage will start with some variant of the same theme. It'll say all scripture or the whole Bible or another translation, every part of scripture. There's, there's in all translations a clue that, hey, 
This applies to everything the scriptures say. It's a totality. It's not picking and choosing. This part is true and this part is false. But it is that all that is written is without error. And that's what this notion means, that all of Scripture is inerrant, without error. How is that defined? Well, there's a, a, a classic document on this, this idea. Uh, men, scholars met in Chicago, so it's called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. It defines it as this. Uh, the Scriptures are true and reliable in all matters they address, and free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit. All right? The assumption being that God exists and is, is perfect in every way, and his perfection would include intellectual perfections, he knows all things, and moral perfections, including he cannot lie or miscommunicate, and what we might call volitional perfections. If he desires something to happen, it will happen. Okay? So he desires that he share his mind with us on certain matters. He desires that what he knows, and knows absolutely as true, that we know as well, and he chooses to communicate that to us through a, a written text. And the fact that he can't lie and knows all things and desires to communicate it ensures that he's able to do so and will do so and actually has done so, such that we can say, yeah, he's communicated to us his mind truth that he knows in the, in the scriptures. So that would mean then that not only, as some would say, the ideas of the Bible are inspired, but actually the very text of the, of the, of the scriptures, actually the very words and the phrases are inspired. That it, 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 It's an inspiration that goes down to the form of the word that you, that's used, the tense of the word that's used sometimes, and so on and so forth. That's why often uh, a, a, a pastor exegeting a text will say and ought to say, and I know Kevin often says, here's the nuance of this word in the Greek. It had this kind of implication. The first hearers would have understood this to mean this because it's those wor very words that are actually inspired, not just the broader principles or concepts. And Jesus himself makes this kind of argument often. When questions, uh, when questioning, for instance, in Matthew 4, he's in the, the temptation in the, in the wilderness, and he is quoting very specific texts and the very words and saying, have you not seen that, the, that this is what God says, these words, and makes his argument based on those very words that uh, had been revealed. So that's the, the idea of inerrancy, okay? That God has given us the very words that uh, that, that best encapsulate his mind on the issues he chooses to reveal his knowledge to us uh, about in the scriptures. Now, uh, it's really important to understand four things that doesn't mean. So in other words, I want, to, I want you to hear what I'm, I am saying, not what I'm not saying, okay? The first thing, and these are going to be ways to ensure we don't misunderstand and misapply the doctrine of inerrancy. The first is, uh, it, it doesn't mean we don't pay attention to literary devices. It doesn't mean we don't have to do our homework when we read the, the Bible to get at what God is revealing. So, for instance, there's a literary device known as a genre, right? A type of literature. 
And we've got to be careful to realize that God communicates in different genres, and we don't want to misread one for the other. Now, a genre is just a, a, a type of writing. Uh, for instance, Romans contains a lot of direct statements. So it's a type of writing that's like a, 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 you know, a manual we get with our car. It's just got, just got truth claims throughout it. Here's the type of fuel you use. Here's what, here's what your tire pressure should be. They're just statements of fact, okay? Well, that's a very different type of genre than poetry. So in the scriptures, Romans is very didactic. It's very much just propositional. You read Psalms, and it's a very different type of literature. It's poetic literature. And then you read Proverbs, and it's even different. It's, it's pithy statements. Uh, it's called the wisdom genre. Or there's historical narrative. You just went through Acts, I understand. Very different genre. This, this historically looking at things that happened, which is different than prophecy. You see in Daniel and Revelation, is a different genre. And it's always a problem and an error to interpret one genre according to the, the, the assumptions of another genre. Let me give you an example. Proverbs 22.6, proverb that all of us as parents are familiar with, train up your child in the way he or she should go, and in their adulthood they will not depart from it. They will follow the way. Well, if you haven't heard, that isn't always true. Uh, we do our best, and sometimes our children don't follow the right path. So one might say, see, the scriptures are not without error. That's an error. It says if you do this, this happens. That doesn't happen always. I know a family where, you know, it, things went south. Well, now that would be true if it was a, a, a type of genre that was making <clears throat> blanket truth claims. But that's not what wisdom literature does. Wisdom literature gives you principles. In general, this is the way the world works. There are exceptions, but in general, this is how things tend to go. But by not understanding the genre, one can say, okay, that's an error in, Bible, in the Bible. I don't think inerrancy is true. Well, that's not what's being claimed in, in, in the doctrine of inerrancy. Let me uh, suggest a book that does a great job of unpacking different genres, so you can really get this in your, kind of in your head. It's by uh, Fee and Stewart. It's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Very accept, accessible. It's not graduate level. It's just a great introduction to genres. Each chapter will go through a different genre, unpack kind of what this genre is, how to read this type of biblical text and interpret it correctly. Okay, so that, that's one. That's really important. Now, that's going to apply to reading hyperbole, metaphor, colloquial expressions of the day, all the different literary devices that are in Scripture being careful to not misinterpret based on not understanding those nuances. They're just different ways that God chooses to communicate his word, and we've got to be careful and do our homework. Okay, so that's the first thing I'm not saying, uh, is, that, is that we don't take those things into account. The second thing that inerrancy doesn't mean is, is, is that God somehow overwrites the individuality of the authors and just kind of dictates through them and they just are sort of like automatic writing machines. No, no, no. Uh, the doctrine of inerrancy assumes that God uses but doesn't overrule the author's personality, background, knowledge, context, all of these things. So when you read Paul, you pick up certain things that come out of his 
his, uh, his academic background and training. It's very different than when you read Luke, who come as a physician, comes at things a little bit differently. And, and understanding those things helps to understand the text. But outside of passages like the Ten Commandments that are dictated, uh, inerrancy doesn't mean God doesn't, doesn't use or we shouldn't be aware of and understand those differences of the authors in our interpretation of the text. Okay? Third thing it doesn't mean is that there are no transcription errors. The doctrine of inerrancy applies to what are called the autographa, the original writing. Okay? From that, there are many, many manuscripts, which are copies of the original. And there are transcription errors where scribes got this from here to there and got it wrong. So it doesn't apply to the manuscripts, it applies to the autographer. <clears throat> uh, this is a longer conversation, I'd love to get back to it in the discussion if you want, but uh, I would argue, and JP would argue, and we talk about this in the uh, Inerrancy podcast, that we actually have the autographer, though we don't have the actual paper and, uh, the, the, and, and ink, okay? Uh, because we can reconstruct it from the many, many copies we have. So that's what's being claimed is, uh, is inerrant, the autographer. And fourth, uh, it doesn't mean our interpretations can't be wrong, okay? Uh, so somebody who claims to be an inerrantist doesn't mean necessarily that they, they get the right understanding of what that inerrant text says. Uh, that's where the hard work comes in, the work of, of, of interpretation, which is uh, hermeneutics, which is uh, what we do when we look at any piece of literature. We interpret what do words mean, what's the context you know, what's going before and after it to help us understand what's the broader cultural understanding of these words and their usages. All those things have to be in play or it's easy to get an errant interpretation of an inerrant revelation. So, for instance, if I pick up a uh, 1895 French newspaper, I got to figure out what that French word means, first of all, and I can understand maybe the you know, context of is this an op-ed piece, or is this a report of what happened last night, or you know, what's the context of this, these words? Uh, and then I've also got to understand kind of what's going on in the culture at that time, in 1895 France, to figure out, well, kind of how is this meaningful and relevant? So all those things come into play anytime we interpret any piece of literature. No different for Scripture. What the words mean, immediate context, broader context, cultural context, all these things come into play to interpret what's being said here. All right, so those are all the things that are not meant by inerrancy and what is meant by inerrancy. Now let me defend it, all right? Let me give some arguments, first of all, some bad ones, then an okay one, then a better one for why I think this uh, is something we as believers ought to embrace. You with me? You good to go? All right, I need a drink of water. Thank you, Kevin. So here are three arguments that I just think are bad arguments. The first argument for inerrancy is because the Bible said so. I heard this right off the bat when I came to faith in high school. Reasoning is something like this. Well, the Bible's God's word. It can be trusted. And it says all scriptures inspired by God. Not, therefore, what else do we need to say? In other words, uh, as was often said in this little church I started going to right after I came to faith, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. 
Now, there's a, there's a certain truth to that. I don't want to negate that. But there's a, in terms of an argument for or a defense of or a rational grounding for inerrancy, that's weak at best. Uh, sometimes it's nice to formalize an argument, put it into premises and conclusion. So that helps to see if there's a problem with the reasoning. And the way to formalize this would be to say, premise one, the Bible is from God, therefore it contains no errors. Premise two, the Bible states it contains no errors. Therefore, conclusion, therefore the Bible contains no errors. Well, that makes it pretty obvious what the problem is. It's a clear case of begging the question or assuming in the, in the premise, premise one, what you want to conclude. But if you assume it as a premise, obviously you get to the conclusion because it's already there. It's called circular reasoning or petitio principi is the technical term. And it's just a bad way to reason. You want your conclusions to follow from premises that don't just start off by assuming that or you really don't get to the conclusion in the right way. So any argument that's based on a logical fallacy like begging the question isn't a good way to start. Some will take another attack, number two, and that is to not even ask the question, to say, look, the Bible doesn't even need defending, okay? The Bible is, um, is uh, uh, God's word, and it's something that is to be revered. It is to be honored. It's to be followed. Uh, and and to, to feel like you have to make a defense of it or an argument for it is really to put man's reasoning above God's reasoning, or put our logic above his logic, or our ways above his ways. So just stop it. Okay? That's kind of the argument. And I'd say at least two errors are going on in this approach. The first is it, it, it's, it's simply false that we ought not to reason and, and give arguments for things we believe, including the veracity or inerrancy of Scripture. This is what we're called to do in 1 Peter 3.15, to always be ready to make an argument or give a defense of what we believe, okay? So, so the objection is simply contrary to the scriptural call to give reasons or evidence for what we believe. Secondly, this is exactly what skeptics are asking for. <laughs> They're coming to us and saying, why do you believe this is true? So just to say you shouldn't ask that question doesn't help them a whole lot because they already did, Right? It's the question they need answered, and we're called to answer. So that's the first problem. The second problem, a, a little more theoretical but important, is this draws a distinction that's really problematic, more problematic than I can even unpack, between human logic and God's logic, or our knowledge and God's knowledge. Not a, not a difference in degree, Clearly, there's a huge difference in degree. He's got a lot more knowledge than I do. But this distinction is a distinction of a difference in kind. His knowledge is different in some way from my knowledge or his reason from my reason, his logic from my logic. Now, first of all, that's akin to an early, early Christian heresy known as Gnosticism, where most people know certain things, but when you get to a higher level of spirituality, you kind of have a secret knowledge of other things. You don't get to through the normal ways of thinking. And uh, that itself, in fact, First John's written against kind of a proto-Gnostic understanding of, of, of reality. So that in itself is problematic. I'm not even going to address that. I'm going to address a logical error here. If, if, if human logic is different than divine logic, 
then we can't know anything about God, including his revelation to us. Because everything we know, let's just take John 3.16, for God so loved the world. We can claim we know that to be the case. First of all, that there is a God, and this God loved the world such that he gave his only begotten son. Okay, we, we, we claim all those things as things we know based on human logic. Namely, well, including, not only, but including the law of non-contradiction. Law of logic that says two opposite things can't both be true. A and not A can't both be true. Same time, same place, same way. Well, if that doesn't apply to God's logic, which goes into writing this book, then we can't come to it with our logic and say, well, it says God loves the world. Gosh, I really want to say that means he doesn't hate the world. But that'd be using human logic, which uses the law of non-contradiction. I can't use that because his logic is different. So maybe he hates the world. And, uh, uh, and, and maybe uh, it says he sent his son, but maybe he didn't too. So, so now wait, he, he loves and hates the world and he didn't, didn't send his son. So I don't even, I don't, what do I believe? I don't, I have got, I've got nothing left. See, the whole of Scripture assumes the laws of logic so we can apply them to the text and come to truth. You give up that, and you give up everything. So a lot of implications. Some of these are unpacked more in some of the things I've written. You can see that, but that's the second. Third, uh, there are no contradictions. Third argument for inerrancy. I think that's true, by the way, but I don't think it's a good reason to believe in, in, in inerrancy. Let me tell you why. Uh, my watch is telling me I'm about done here. So, good. Uh, let me summarize some of this. If this is our reason to believe in inerrancy, because there's no contradictions, then every time an alleged contradiction arises, either maybe there's an archaeological find that throws some, some question, uh, questions upon the uh, biblical narrative, maybe in the Old Testament, or we run to a passage that we can't figure out and seems to say something contradictory. Whatever it is, now all of a sudden we've got to suspend our belief in inerrancy until we can figure this out. And great, we figure it out, we get back to, you know, okay, now I believe the Bible is fully without error. But then another thing arises. Or maybe something doesn't arise, but you're like, well, there's a possibility something will arise, so I really can't embrace this view because I can't really get to the place where I say there are no contradictions. Well, the... Uh, the problem with that is that, uh, that most of the things that we believe, we believe based on reason, evidence, and probability, even though we, 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 we sometimes have questions that still need to be answered, but they're not enough, they're not sufficient enough to overturn our belief in, well, let's just take gravity, for instance. Uh, it's, it's, it's an approach that we don't apply in the rest of life. It actually only applies to logic. Uh, and mathematics, where we've got this kind of 100% certainty. And everything else we, we believe, we believe because there's a, a preponderance of evidence that leads us to this conclusion that we then act upon, even though, yeah, there could, there could be some things out there we can't explain yet, but we just need to keep working on those things to, to explain them. So I don't think it's a good place to build a, a case. And actually, when JP and I did this last podcast, he referred to an article that I have posted uh, in the show notes that he wrote back in the 80s actually on this, and I think it makes a really rigorous and good argument against this as a reason to believe in inerrancy. Uh, I'm just going to mention the, the, the third, the fourth one I think is okay, and then I'll just bullet point the fifth one that I think is the way to go. The fourth is the, con the, uh, 
the continuity of Scripture. This is an all right argument. Uh, it's the argument that, that there are so many different authors through such a 1,500-year period of time, different socioeconomic uh, stations in life. There's so many variations of all the authors of, of Scripture, yet there's this precision throughout, this continuity, this story where all the details fit together. And so it'd be really hard to kind of do that without God's divine inspiration and oversight. Decent argument. Uh, I'm okay with that. But uh, it's less persuasive, I think, to, to non-believers than the fifth argument. And I'm just going to bullet point this, and then we're going to talk about this a little bit. The fifth argument is, uh, is, 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 is in the writings of John Stott, for instance, and John Warwick Montgomery. And I think it avoids all the errors of the other arguments. It's not circular. It starts with commonly accessible data, historical data, and it, um, it's rigorous. The premises can all be justified, and the conclusion follows from the premises, which are the two ways arguments can go bad. Either false premises or conclusion doesn't follow. Uh, and it doesn't depend on whether there's any current alleged contradictions or not. So I call it the inductive argument for inerrancy. Premise one, the four Gospels are historically accurate. doesn't assume they're God's word, they're inspired. It just says, look, given the canons of, 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 of historical study, the, the, the norms, the ways we ascertain whether documents are historically accurate or not from the ancient world, the New Testament gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, pass with flying colors. So much better than the works of Thucydides or Aristotle or, other, or others. Or, um, or uh, yeah, you, you, you name the, the person. These documents are clearly by this person and recording what happened. Maybe what happened is false, et cetera, but is, um, is it, I'm not false, but it could be interpreted different ways. Great, fine. But at least we've got a historical record we can start with and then start working on it. So that's first. Second, the central figure in these four narratives, these four historical documents, makes a claim to be God and proves that through both words and deeds. So that's a, a long point to unpack and defend uh, what I've done, some more in the writings I've done, but uh, I think it's, it's, it's a, a premise that can be very, very solidly supported, that Jesus claimed to be God and proved to be such in this, these historical documents. Third, as God, which has now been established, he wouldn't lie or mislead. That's part of what it is to be God. You tell the truth. So what he says is true. So whatever Jesus says is, 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 is by definition the facts of the matter as God. Four, he says the Old Testament is inspired by God and without error. Makes claims and, and, and acts as if that was true, that everything in the Old Testament uh, is, is God's word to us. And fifth, he says the New Testament will be written uh, by God through the apostles and would be without error. And that's actually why the canon came to be, the New Testament canon, because it had to pass certain tests of uh, apostolic authority, that this was actually from the pen of one of the apostles or somebody who wrote on behalf of an apostle as a scribe. And a conclusion, therefore, we have good reason to believe the 66 books of the Old and New Testament are uh, inerrant, are without error. So, uh, I don't know if 
the pastor in Kansas City has read my articles on this, listened to the podcast JP and I did on this. Hope he does. Hope he's influenced. Don't know. Hope this is helpful for you, though, because this is an important issue, and there's really solid evidence and data to support the view that the scriptures are without error. And uh, I hope I touched on a few things that might be helpful as you work through as a believer uh, how to understand Scripture and apply it to your life. So I'm going to stop there. Uh, About how much time have I left? Five minutes? Ten minutes. Great. So let's talk about this. Questions, objections, observations. Yes? Sure. Yeah, two different questions. So let me divide them. So so the broader culture, um, the advent of postmodernism has really led to a whole different set of issues here. Uh, namely, is there even such a thing as truth? I don't think so. So I'm not even interested in uh, the Bible's claim to be true and, and, and whether or not it is, because I don't even think truth is possible. Okay? So that's a whole other conversation, but I think it's important to be able to understand that's what's going on. It's a certain view of what we can know Actually, it's tied to what is, but ultimately it's, it, it's cashed out in terms of we really can't know truth, so truth becomes what we decide it's going to be. So it relativizes truth. The short answer to that is the best way to help a person get past that, and this is a process, not an event, so it doesn't just happen in one conversation, but it happens often over a week, month, year, decade-long conversation, but it's just to ask questions to help the person realize that they don't actually live according to that. Because everybody wants to be authentic, especially the postmodern generation. That's a, a watchword, you know, authenticity. I've got to be me. I've got to be true to who I am. Well, part of being authentic and, uh, and true to yourself is, is, is living according to what you believe, you know, not being, um, what's the word, uh, you know, kind of fake, but actually being, uh, saying you believe something and then living accordingly. Well, if truth is relative and there is no truth, then you just need to start asking questions about the places that person seems to live as if there's objective truth. So, uh, as of late, there are a lot of people who are postmodernists, I'll just give you one example, postmodernists who are making a lot of morally objective truth claims like racism is wrong, which, which is true. But as a postmodernist where there's no objective truth, you really can't make that claim. All you can say is, racism is wrong for me. Now, as a Christian, we can make that claim because there's morally objective truth. People are made in the image of God, are equal, uh, regardless of ethnicity, anything. But as a postmodern relativist, you can't make that claim. So, you know, so you just have to ask the question of, now, help me put this together. I thought you said that, you know, my truth is my truth and your truth is your, your truth, but you seem to think this is a universal truth that we all ought to accept. I think it's true because I think there's a God and he's revealed truth, but why do you think that's true? Or even more simply, you know, do you balance your checkbook? Well, I guess you don't do it anymore, you know. <laughs> um, do you stop for red lights? I mean, you take anything, people, when it comes down to it, live as if there's objective truth. And in fact, they live that way because that leads to flourishing, in one case, not getting hit by the car coming through the intersection in another way. But in other ways, it leads to flourishing, you know, in, 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 in a myriad of ways. And so, so everybody wants to find truth and live according to it, even if they say they don't. 
Well, if you want to find truth, and this book claims to be truth about the way the world is, that'd be a good thing to know if it's, if it's right or not. Now, if it's not, let's throw it out and go, you know, because we're all wasting our time. But if it is, it's going to tell us how we can find flourishing, life, abundant, eternal life, all the things we want. So I'd go at it that way. Uh, actually, I did interview a gentleman named Randy Newman on my College Faith podcast who's an expert at asking good questions evangelistically that apply. So I might refer you to his books um, as he does this really well and kind of talks about how to ask good questions. The second one about Israel, uh, I, I, would, I would put that in the category of evolution creation, for example, or Calvinism, Arminianism or other issues that are, that, are, that are important theological issues that, uh, that, that we ought to wrestle with and come to grips with. But there are different views among Christians about the relationship of Israel to the church. So I wouldn't make that a big issue. Just like there are different views of God's uh, activity in creation, uh, there are different views of God's cre- activity in salvation. These are all important, but they're kind of intramural debates. So I'd take that off the table and say, look, you know, I'm not going to die in the mat for this, that, the other. It's a debate Christians have. Here's the gospel, and get back to the core issue, not the relationship Israel to, you know, the church, to the modern state, to geopolitical boundaries and all that. Is that helpful? Okay. Okay, so an inerrancy does not apply to translations. It's just the autographer, not the manuscripts or the translations that are made of the manuscripts. Okay. So if people were wanting to tie inerrancy to the, to the actual translations, that's just un- misunderstanding the view. Uh, good translations uh, will note sections where the, the manuscripts, there's, there, there's, there, there's discrepancy among the manuscripts. Like Mark 16, if you notice in your Bibles, the last, I don't know how many, nine, eight verses of Mark 16 is bracketed. And at the bottom will say, no, this section is not found in the earliest manuscripts. It's found in a number of later manuscripts, so it's in there, but it's bracketed out. So translations will always note those things. Or there'll be other footnotes about, you know, this word could have meant this. So they're giving you a, a, a note that, you know, this is a translation we think is right, but this one it could be. And, um, and that's why it's good to read out of various translations. And there's a continuum uh, without getting into all of it, between translations that are uh, taking the actual words and using those words, even though those words might not mean something to us, like cubit, like New American Standard would use cubit. We don't really know what a cubit is, but that was the word that was used, so there it is. Uh, other translations that are called, called more on the end of a dynamic equivalence would take and translate, say, cubit into foot. Well, that wasn't the word he used. I'm not even sure what it is. Maybe it's yard. But that would be kind of the, the, the equivalent today of that word. And there's a whole continuum of translations from the, the gosh, the, the message, which is way over here, which is not the words at all, but trying to get the ideas, to Young's literal translation, or even New American Standard, that's, that's very much kind of that word to word to word to word. So that is important to know and to use different translations. Uh, I actually like the Amplified Bible also. Because it'll give a word, it'll give brackets, like four different words that could kind of shade that meaning. It's really hard to read a passage because it's like eight times as long. <laughs> but you kind of get the, 
a little more of the depth. Is that helpful? Okay. Okay. And I think I cite some resources in my article on inerrancy related to this, and if not, email me and I'll send some your way. I think I'm at time, right? Okay. Oh, and the gentleman in the back who stood up, and I, I now recognize Good, yeah. Yeah, I'll make two comments on that, uh, three comments. Uh, first, yes, I think fulfilled prophecy is a good, good line of supporting data for uh, the, the veracity of Scripture. You can get to an inerrancy from it, but it's a good starting point. There are two, uh, the, 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 there's one underlying assumption, uh, actually two, that, need, that need to, you need to be ready to address on that. One is, uh, well, here, there are two objections. One is, well, yeah, but those prophecies were written after they happened. They're just kind of written back in, okay? Now, there's a lot of data that responds that, no, actually, these prophecies were written, and we can date those texts centuries before their fulfillment, say, in the, the, the birth of Jesus. And the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, for instance, gave us even more data because it was a treasure trove of scrolls that were well predated of Isaiah that had some Messianic prophecy. But you've got to be able to go there and have that conversation to respond to that objection that's common. Uh, and the second one is, well, there are a lot of prophecies that haven't come true about them. And, you know, we're talking about Messianic prophecy generally, uh, maybe exclusively. A lot of things about the Messiah that haven't come true. Well, we've got to make the distinction and be able to understand and unpack the distinction between the first advent and the Messiah and the second advent, Right? The first coming of Christ uh, in, 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 in Bethlehem, and then the final triumphant return that will come at the end of the age. And so that's the second objection that could come. You've got, got to be ready for to, to, to make that distinction. But, but, but good, good argument, good point, good line of reasoning. So I'm going to wrap it up here. Thank you. Uh, so good to be with you again. Blessings to you, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit.